Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Dr. Samantha Shaw is a board-certified outpatient psychiatrist. She attended Michigan State University for medical school and completed her general psychiatry residency at the University of Michigan. Her area of expertise is women's mental health and perinatal psychiatry, and she is a member of the faculty team for the Perinatal Psychiatry Clinic at Michigan Medicine. She carries the title of clinical instructor and is heavily involved in educating healthcare providers. That's why she's here today to really share some information about caring for women during that really important perinatal and postpartum period. It's so important for the women and important for their babies too. So please tune in and listen up and join me in welcoming Dr. Samantha Shaw. Hi, Samantha. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for joining me. I know how busy you are. So you have a really interesting job. You are a psychiatrist who specializes in women's health and particularly perinatal health. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yep, that's right. Yeah. So I didn't know there was a specialized field like that. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Absolutely. So it is not um, an official sort of sub classification or or something that you can do a, a full fellowship in, as some people do with, for example, addiction psychiatry, forensic psychiatry, things like that. There are some ACGME programs that are starting up that are accredited, but for quite a while, it's been something that has been more of an informal training. So some people, if they didn't have a lot of exposure to it in their residency, but were interested in it might go and do an unofficial fellowship at a center that did have um, that patient population and the expertise that they worked with. I was lucky enough to kind of be in a residency program where we had a really great perinatal clinic and a really great leader of that clinic, Dr. Maria Music. So I was able to spend a fair amount of time in the that clinic as well as some other subclinics and also have a lot of other interesting training experiences. So I um, trained in and helped facilitate a maternal mental health group and also had a strong interest in psychotherapy and spent some extra time doing that. So I felt really, really well prepared to go into this field after I finished residency. That is so interesting. And for people who don't know Dr. Maria Music, she is just so terrific. So how lucky you got to train with her. Absolutely. So, So a lot of obstetricians, I would say probably most, are now screening women in the perinatal kind of part of their pregnancy and then afterwards as well. And they're screening routinely for depression using, I think, most of the time the Edinburgh screen. And a lot of moms, even, you know, of course, before they got pregnant, struggle with anxiety and depression, continue to struggle with that during their pregnancy and then after their pregnancy. So, you know, who knew that those things wouldn't go away, right? And might actually get worse, you know, mm-hmm. add on the fatigue postpartum, and now you're really in trouble. For sure. And and a lot of moms might actually benefit from treatment that includes therapy or medications. And I think particularly SSRIs are commonly used. But I think the question that a lot of obstetricians have, and honestly, I think even psychiatrists who don't specialize or have Mm -hmm. experience are really concerned about prescription use like this in this period. So are these medications safe during pregnancy and after pregnancy? Can you speak to that? Mm -hmm. I'm happy to. So this is something that we've actually gathered quite a bit of data about over time. And so we're kind of in a lucky time to be alive as far as having really good reassuring data about the majority of these medications. 
But before we talk about the safety data, one piece that I think that so many people are unaware of is the risk of untreated depression and anxiety in pregnancy. And a lot of people think, well, if I have these symptoms, but I don't take a medication, then I, I'm avoiding all risk. But we know that that's not true. You know, there are increased levels of stress hormones circulating in the bodies of people who have untreated depression and anxiety, amongst other things. We know that a lot of times it's harder for them to have as healthy lifestyles, to be as active, get exercise, to make good food choices, sometimes even to attend their prenatal appointments. So there is a measurable risk to the pregnancy and the baby postpartum for women who have untreated depression and anxiety. So the question of you know, whether or not these medications are safe in pregnancy requires that we compare any potential risk of, of these medications to the risk of untreated depression and anxiety in pregnancy and postpartum. So I want to stop you right there because you said something really dramatic. You said that there might be a risk to mothers and babies if mothers aren't treated for anxiety and depression during pregnancy. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So we know that people who have untreated depression and anxiety are at a slightly smaller risk of having preterm birth, as well as babies that are small for gestational age. And then when we get into the postpartum period, one of the, again, the, the advances that we've made in the past, you know, few decades is this understanding of infant mental health. And sometimes people think, well, it's just a baby. They don't have a, a whole lot going on cognitively. So it can't really matter, you know, as long as you feed them, as long as you take care of them, then it doesn't really matter if someone who is taking care of them is depressed or anxious. But we actually know that that's not true. Babies are developing really important networks regarding social interactions, attachments, all of that in the very early stages of their life. And there have been some very good studies actually showing the impact of mothers who are depressed, for example, on infants. So we know that this is a really important thing to, to monitor and to take into account. And even when we see women in the postpartum period and we talk to them about depression and anxiety, they'll report a lot of times, you know, I just don't feel connected to my baby the way that I thought I would. I don't feel connected to anybody right now. Um, and we know that that infants actually can, can sense this um, and that this does impact them. Oh, that just sounds so sad. A mom who's feeling sad and then feeling like she's not attached to her baby and then like a bad mom. And it just sounds like, oh, that must be so hard. Absolutely. So one of the things that you're saying is that babies have emotional and mental well-being and mental health, kind of that what happens perinatally, them swimming around in kind of a, a hormonal cortisol bath, if you will, absolutely can affect their brain development and mm -hmm. might have implications for even some behaviors that might be difficult. I guess one of the things that comes to mind is, is a baby who's hard to console or having trouble sleeping? Can that be related? So I don't know that those particular pieces are as related to depression and anxiety in pregnancy as much as postpartum depression and anxiety sometimes can lead to some of those things. So if a mom is feeling really overwhelmed and really depressed, she may not have the same sort of responsive cues or attentiveness or just not be able to as a mom who weren't struggling with those things. And so then sometimes, yes, infants can struggle to be consoled or have some behavioral issues moving forward. Wow. That's a lot for a mom, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that the thing that is important to know is that depression and anxiety are illnesses that can be chronic and illnesses just like any other illness. And certainly if mom were to have another significant illness that was maybe causing her pain or that she had to go to the hospital for, that would certainly impact bonding and connection with her baby as well. So I really want to make sure that we're not stigmatizing moms who are struggling with depression and anxiety and, you know, making them feel as though they're harming their babies 
because they're doing the best that they can. And we have wonderful treatments right now for depression and anxiety in the perinatal period. And we, we also know that just as in any other relationship, disruptions that happen in that relationship can be repaired. And so even if you were struggling the first, you know, several months or so, that doesn't mean that your chances to have a wonderful, beautiful connection with your baby and to have a healthy child are gone. Um, there's still plenty of chance and plenty of hope for that. Well, and for listeners, I did a recording early on in the podcast last year with Christina Ledlow, who is involved at our hospital screening moms for risk and had her own kind of OCD really postpartum. And and I've shared before that I had really severe anxiety postpartum. And and I've said this before, I mean, I just felt like a bad mom, but I like to think that I, you know, really loved my daughter. I was so worried about doing it right. And fortunately, she's a lovely young adult and Mm -hmm. we have a great relationship, but It, it didn't feel good back then. And I, you know, I didn't know what was wrong and people mm-hmm. didn't ask back then. So I'm grateful anytime that I can identify a mom because a lot of pediatricians now are doing the screening in the postpartum because we see these moms and babies. So mm-hmm. I'm grateful to that. And then grateful to know that, you know, people like you exist to help us. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, you know, the other piece too is thinking about some of this mom guilt, right? Moms are really good at blaming themselves for many different things. Um, Everything. (laughs) (laughs) But that, you know, if you think about evolution and this question of postpartum anxiety, it probably was adaptive back in the day, right? It was the moms who were hypervigilant, who were looking out for predators in the environment, all of these things whose babies survived. And so, so this is potentially a vestige of that. And you're, you know, these moms are great moms. It's just that sometimes the anxiety doesn't necessarily have a place anymore. We, we live in these comfortable houses um, and there aren't a whole lot of threats in our environment anymore. But definitely the, whether you're depressed, whether you're anxious has no bearing on how good of a mother you are. Well, thank you for that. And I think about moms who are there's a lot of other stressors in their life, you know, maybe they don't have a safe home, maybe their income is precarious, maybe they're experiencing significant poverty or the effects of racism. I mean, there's a whole lot of other factors that sometimes we don't think about, especially when we look at those, you know, Pinterest and Instagram pictures with the happy mom and happy baby. And knowing behind that facade, maybe it's not always happy and it's hard, but I like that you're offering that there is hope for this. Absolutely. So maybe we can step back and talk a little bit about safety of medication, because I think that that is a huge worry for the moms and a huge worry for the, you know, the prescribers. Absolutely. So as I mentioned, women who have untreated depression and anxiety in pregnancy can have some higher incidences of preterm labor, babies that are small for gestational age, things like that. And antidepressants in general have use in the perinatal period have some of similar profiles. So first of all, there's no increased risk of birth defects with antidepressants. I think that's the first thing that most people worry about. And then when compared to untreated depression and anxiety in pregnancy, antidepressant use has no increased risk of preterm births, babies that are too small or too large for gestational age, any of those things. And then the final thing that I tell people that is something that is a difference between untreated depression and anxiety and using medications is in the postpartum period, sometimes babies can um, have almost a little bit of withdrawal effects from the antidepressant. So I want to make a a distinction that it's not the sort of withdrawal that we think about with babies who are born to mothers who are abusing substances, things like that. But anyone who has been on an antidepressant and forgotten it or abruptly stopped it, know that that can be a pretty uncomfortable experience. And so this is something that in the literature, it says it happens in maybe 30% of babies who are born to moms taking these medications. I've had many moms taking these medications I 
have not really had anybody come back and say that they noticed this in their baby. Um, if it does happen, it's usually quite mild and time limited. So maybe a few hours to a few days, they might be a little bit more jittery or fussy. And in general, it doesn't require any sort of supportive care um, or extra care for the baby. And there's no long-term consequences for baby. So again, it's something that doesn't happen very often in my experience. If it's if it does, it's quite mild. But sometimes professionals who haven't, who don't know some more about um, about this specific issue, can be a little bit fearful about it, and sometimes misportray that to patients. One thing that I've noticed a lot um, happening is patients coming back to me and saying, "Hey, I got my prescription from the pharmacy, and it says not to take it in the third trimester of pregnancy. Why is that?" From what I can tell, this is what it's related to is this concern potentially about what's called sometimes poor neonatal adaptation syndrome. Um, but really, again, if it does happen, it's quite mild and I don't see it happening that often, but I do like to tell patients about it. And if they're Googling it, they might see it online. So I'm wondering, does that speak a little bit to if a mom after pregnancy stopped it abruptly because she was scared about breastfeeding, for example, that you might see that too. Absolutely. Yep. And you know, the, the other piece too about safety and breastfeeding is that a lot of these medications are extremely safe in breastfeeding. So the amount of these medications that is getting into the breast milk is between one and 10% for most of these antidepressant, anti-anxiety medications. And again, I want to make it clear they're called antidepressants, but they're the first line treatment for both depression and anxiety. So don't let the name antidepressant fool you. But so yeah, we have a lot of really good data about safety in breastfeeding, both short-term. We don't have, you know, short-term adverse consequences on babies, and we don't have any evidence of longer-term neurodevelopmental consequences. Well, that's certainly reassuring. And the group of medications primarily you're referring to would be the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs. I'm wondering about some of our moms that might have more complex mental health. Mm -hmm kind yeah. of like, for example, bipolar and might be on an, an atypical medication in addition to their SSRI or ADHD meds. What about those? Yeah. So um, as far as antidepressants, SSRIs, SNRIs, Wellbutrin, tricyclic antidepressants, all of those have quite good safety data and kind of abide by the the profile that I mentioned before. Um, when it comes to people with bipolar disorder, that's definitely a conversation for them to have with their provider, as opposed to antidepressants, atypical antipsychotics don't necessarily have as a class, all of the same safety profiles. So individual agents sometimes are either have more or less data or have more or less potential risk associated with them. Certainly things like lithium and Depakote are things that need to be discussed with a provider. Depakote is quite teratogenic and certainly something that we don't want patients on in pregnancy. Lithium, even though you know most of us in med school were probably taught, oh, lithium is completely contraindicated in pregnancy. A lot of the initial data that we had about it were case reports. And so if you're just looking at reports of bad things happening, you don't know Know how large the sample is and how many people actually took it without adverse effect. So the Epstein's anomaly, things like that, cardiovascular malformations that we were initially concerned about with lithium use in pregnancy occur at a, a much lower rate than was initially thought, but it requires a lot of monitoring and close follow-up during pregnancy and postpartum. So it, it's an option, but definitely something that should be managed by a psychiatrist. As far as ADHD medications, um, we actually are gathering more and more data about this. Um, one of the initial difficulties with some of the data about stimulants is that the sample group being used was people actually who abused methamphetamine. And we know that people who are abusing substances have very different lifestyles, um, risk factors than people who are just taking, for example, Adderall as prescribed for ADHD. So luckily, we do have a growing body of 
data about prescribed stimulants for control of ADHD. And so far, actually, things look pretty reassuring, both for pregnancy and for lactation. But there are some potential risks that, again, should be decided between a patient and their prescriber. And we we kind of look at the, the costs versus risks with stimulants in each individual patient, knowing that potentially it could be associated with gestational hypertension, adverse placental outcomes, things that that can be significant. So definitely something that requires more of an in-depth conversation with a psychiatrist. Well, and I'm wondering, I mean, ADHD certainly can be debilitating, but it may be more manageable than some of the other things perhaps. So I guess I could see a mom being a little bit apprehensive or more willing to say, maybe I'll forego my stimulants during pregnancy until there's more data. I don't know. Do you get that question? It depends on the severity of the ADHD. So certainly there are people who have mild ADHD and can function, you know, without a stimulant. There are other people who just really can't. And also it's important to recognize that ADHD is comorbid with anxiety, with depression, um, and actually with substance abuse. And so not treating the ADHD can not only leave them untreated with the ADHD, symptoms, but potentially worsen symptoms of depression and anxiety as well. So, you know, for most patients who struggle to function without a stimulant, we kind of discuss, okay, let's see maybe what the lowest dose is that we can get you on. Um, And then just make sure that we're monitoring you throughout. We're making sure that your blood pressures are well controlled, the baby is growing appropriately, all of those things. So one of the things that you're saying, and I'm thinking in my head is, Gosh, it would be so great to be able to consult with a psychiatrist that has this kind of expertise, whether you're a pediatrician, an obstetrician, or a general psychiatrist who might not have this training, but you guys are far and, you know, far and few. And so what's, so? how, how do you deal with that? How do we find you? Absolutely. So one of the great things is that there are a lot of um, states now that are having actually free consultation services that they are making available. So for example, in Michigan, I am part of the MC3 perinatal consultation group. So this is funded through the state and we have basically a phone-based consultation service where primary care providers throughout the state that are treating these women can call into us and ask us questions about treatment for these ladies. So that's something that's available in Michigan. And I will include also um, a list of the all of the states that have these programs. So there's actually quite a few now. Uh, one of the first ones was in Massachusetts. So that is an excellent resource And there are also actually a lot of different services online that are making available some of these things too. I believe there's one through Postpartum Support International, as well as some other places. So luckily, we're we're becoming more available. Even if we can't see patients one-to-one individually, we can definitely provide individualized support to providers with their patients. Well, and I think a really great thing about these child psychiatry access programs, often referred to as CPAP, that with the American Rescue um, Plan that was approved by Congress, there's a lot more funding going out to states Mm -hmm. to develop these programs so they're available in every state. Mm -hmm. So primarily, I think they were looking on the pediatric side, and and I think there's 31-ish states that have these pediatric programs. And then again, some have this perinatal piece as well. So hopefully with those funds, because I think a lot of programs are grant funded, so then that's always a question of sustainability. Mm -hmm. But as someone who has benefited from MC3, and I actually consult with them now, it is amazing. And I think people are just not kind of in the habit of thinking, I can call a, a colleague in psychiatry because we haven't had that kind of access in the past. So absolutely, so amazing. What are the kinds of questions that you get on Mm -hmm. the MC3 line? Yeah, that's a good question. Honestly, we get the full range and we're happy to answer any questions. So it can be anything from, you know, I have this patient who is on Prozac and found out they're pregnant. Is it safe for her to continue it to, you know, I have this patient who has a marijuana use disorder and bipolar disorder and is on four different medications and is manic. What do I do? 
do. So it can really be the full gambit of different things that are going on for patients. So we try to do the best that we can, both providing medication recommendations, but also recommendations about support services in the community that can be utilized that maybe the provider hasn't thought of. And then our BHCs, our behavioral health consultants, are specific to different geographic regions. And they have a list of all of the community providers in that area that they're able to share with the provider, to share with the patient. If they would benefit, for example, from getting psychotherapy in the community or, you know, getting on a, usually it's a wait list to see the community, you know, a psychiatrist that's in the community. What an amazing service. And it just makes so much sense. And I would encourage anyone who's listening to, you know, think about calling because these programs are extraordinarily helpful. I mean, some of those complex things when you're talking about four meds and, and, you know, you add on THC and a mom who's manic and not doing well. I mean, I wouldn't want to be doing that on my own for (laughs) sure. So in talking about that, I think, you know, we see a lot of things that are sensationalized on the news about a psychotic mom or a mom who, you know, actually may kill her children because of mental illness. Is that very common? It's not very common at all. It's quite uncommon. And the other thing too, is that, you know, obviously, like you mentioned, a lot of these things are sensationalized. And the tricky thing is that a lot of moms who are not psychotic, but who are maybe struggling with mental health issues might have thoughts of harming their babies that are what we call intrusive thoughts. So thoughts that kind of pop into their brains, but aren't consistent with what their values are or indicative of what they would really act on or want to do. And in these particular groups of mothers, so not all mothers having these thoughts, but in the vast majority, they're not at any greater risk of acting on these thoughts. And these thoughts can be very stigmatizing. Sometimes people don't understand them, haven't heard of them before, or think that mom is really going to act on them and might send her to the emergency room. So it's something that I think even more common, right, than these things that we hear about in the news are moms who are having some thoughts um, of harming their babies, but that really aren't at risk of acting on them, but just need a lot of help and support to start feeling better. Usually in these situations, it's moms who are feeling very overwhelmed, very stressed, depressed. Um, And so they, a lot of times they do much better once they start to get some treatment. So I think If there's anything that I could say is kind of a public service announcement, it's please, you know, be aware that this is something that happens actually much more frequently than we think, but moms are afraid to tell providers about it. And so it's important to to know that this is something that exists so that you can calmly talk to a mom about this if, if she's sharing that with you. So I think some physicians, I mean, I could certainly see a situation where a mom is terrified she's going to drop her baby or throw her baby down the stairs. I think Mm -hmm. that's a common intrusive thought and that we might think, gosh, should I call Child Protective Services? Maybe we should take a deep breath and ask a few more questions and make sure that we get her to some resources that are particular. And I think one of the things that's important is not all therapists are experts in this field. So that's important. Are there training programs for primary care that are out there online or? I believe there are some. And I also know that, so in our state, I know Pine Rest does a lot of different conferences and talks. And then Postpartum Support International, I believe, also does a lot of different trainings um, that people can get you know, certifications for. So definitely lots of options for that. And like you said, taking a deep breath when a mom shares that the, the, her worst nightmare would be CPS getting called. And, you know, I think it it would be really um, unfortunate if that were to happen. I, I understand that providers get really nervous and uh, more mandated reporters. And we want to make sure that everybody is safe. But I think the the part that you mentioned, she's terrified that she's going to do this is the key that we are looking for. So most moms who are falling into this category of having intrusive thoughts that are not actually dangerous are worried about the thoughts or distressed about the thoughts or fearful of them. Um, And that's really one of the important defining characteristics when you're thinking about, is this a mom who is struggling with mental health issues and is not going to act on these thoughts? Or is this a mom who's maybe psychotic? And in a lot of cases, there's 
a delusional component, right? So if you have read some of these news stories, this mom was psychotic, thought that their baby had something about them that meant that they were evil or going to cause harm to the world, something like that. And so to her, it made sense then to harm the baby. Um, and she was not obviously distressed about that thought of harming the baby. So that can be um, an important clue for providers to look into. I'm wondering, I mean, I'm thinking about the Edinburgh, and it really doesn't include a question about intrusive thoughts. And that's unfortunate because, you know, we might not think to ask that. And from what you're saying, that's pretty common. Mm -hmm. So if maybe we have to remember to ask that question. Yeah, I think it can be helpful to ask, but I think it has to be asked very delicately because a lot of moms are worried that if they endorse these, that someone will call CPS or someone will take their baby away from them or someone will put them in the hospital. And so one of the the good tactics sometimes to ask these questions can be, geez, you know, I, I know that I have a lot of moms who are struggling with postpartum mood, anxiety, difficulties. And sometimes they have some thoughts that kind of worry them. They have some thoughts that, you know, of maybe throwing their baby out the window. And these are actually pretty common. Sometimes moms feel afraid to share them because they think that we would call CPS or we would take their baby from them. You know, that's not something that we do in those situations. Are you having any of those thoughts? Because they can be really distressing. Yeah, I think that phrasing about, I don't know about you, but other folks have, I mean, I think that's true anytime we're exploring those thoughts and and probably certainly suicidal thoughts. I had a mom one time that shared with me after the fact that she'd had suicidal thoughts and that she couldn't bear the thought of leaving her children. And so she had contemplated killing her children as well. Fortunately, she was far beyond that phase, but you know, when she first shared that, I mean, I thought how horrifying for her that things were that bad. So that kind of brings me to this idea about the patient mom who's not my patient. Yeah. So I'm in the pediatric practice. I'm doing these screenings. I'm doing a great job of asking. I have some resources in mind, but now I have a mom who's suicidal. And I don't, you know, is it my responsibility? What What do I do with that? Right. Yeah, well, I think that definitely a little bit of information about suicidal thoughts, things like that is good to have. Certainly, there is a big difference between someone who's saying, there are times when I wish I wouldn't wake up in the morning and someone who's saying I've started collecting pills so that I could overdose. Um, and so there are a lot of people who struggle with depression, maybe anxiety, who have what we call these passive suicidal thoughts. So they have these thoughts of maybe wishing to be dead, but they've not really ventured into that territory of how they would hurt themselves Or if they have, some people might say, you know, sometimes I'm driving down the highway and I think what would it would be like to um, crash my car into a tree, but they can quickly follow that up and say, I would never do that. That's not something I would ever do. For other people, um, they might be a little bit more on the fence about whether or not that's something that they would act on, or they might have gotten to the point, again, where they're making preparations, things like that. Um, And certainly, you may not have the time um, there as a pediatrician to to tease all of that out. But certainly, you you can refer patients to the nearest emergency department if you are worried about their safety. Ideally, too, if you have a social worker in your clinic, that would be a great opportunity to say, hey, could you come and talk to this patient. She's, you know, having some thoughts of of self-harm and I think she might need some extra support. Um, And and I think really whether they're suicidal or whether they're just struggling with anxiety, it can be really helpful to have someone in the clinic then who can kind of do a little bit more of an assessment, figure out um, how much difficulty this is causing them and then figure out how to connect them with the next step in their care for that. So, you know, whether it's referring them back to the OB to say, you know, maybe you should check in with your OB and let them know how you're feeling because hopefully OB will maybe feel a little bit more comfortable or be a little bit more knowledgeable about postpartum mood and anxiety issues. Um, But if they're not working with their OB, referring them back to their PCP to, to discuss these issues. And a lot of times, whether it's at the pediatric office or their OB's office or their PCP's office, a lot of times that then involves a social worker getting involved and helping make connections to if they need a prescriber or if they need referrals for a therapist. 
So I've said over and over in the podcast since I started is that if you are in any way, shape or form able to have mental health provider in your practice, this is exactly the kind of situation. And I think it's well worth the cost. And and certainly those clinicians can bill for services. So, you know, I think people need to really, really consider this. I also think that it certainly is in the purview of the pediatric provider or family practice to ask some risk assessment questions. And the podcasts in May were all about that and using tools like the Ask Suicide Screen questions designed for kids, but now validated in adults or the Columbia. You know, you can ask a couple of those questions. So you have a sense of, do you have a plan? Do you have intent? Do you have means? And then you can make that decision. Like, do I need to send them to the ER? Can I call their primary care? Can I call their OB and get them some help? I think the other thing that's important to know is that the mom's an adult and we always worry about HIPAA, but that HIPAA does allow to disclose this kind of thing without, you know, I think liability to the provider. I think we would be more liable if a mom shared this and we didn't say anything. So contacting the patient, I mean, of course you would ask, you know, I, I need to get some help for you. I'd like to call your husband, your partner, your mother, you know, whomever mm-hmm. to come and get you or whatever it is. So that we know we just want to keep you safe. This isn't a punishment, but it, it's not only a risk to her, it's a risk to the baby. Mm-hmm. So I, I think this is an area where I've heard pushback from pediatricians like, but what do I do if they do disclose? Now I'm responsible. But I, I think my kind of response back was, but this is in the best interest of the baby and, and the baby is our patient. So, yeah, and I think this is, again, there are lots of resources online. I mean, there's a, a YouTube on how to do the Columbia, for example, and, and the Columbia was designed so that people that aren't mental health professionals can ask questions. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, it's that I don't know about you, but lots of people have thoughts about planning. Have you ever, have you ever done that in the past? So that's an important part. Well, thank you so much for that. So in thinking about, so you've talked a lot about these access programs and I'll make sure that we include in the show note resources where people can find more information about that. But I think just becoming more aware, and I would give a big shout out to PSI. I did a a course. It was a two-day course. It was amazing. And I think, you know, here we're in the pandemic. We're recording this in May. I'm hoping that, you know, we're going to be able to do in-person trainings again somewhat soon. They are excellent. And just the amount of resources that they have is is so amazing, whether it's for providers doing education or for patients. You know, they even have so many virtual support groups as well for patients that are, um, like I mentioned, virtual, some that are for dads that, you know, there are so many different subpopulations as well that they make some of these subgroups for. So just so incredibly inclusive, even providing groups, like I mentioned, for dads, as well as the opportunity to speak to fathers, um, a father that's a a parenting kind of expert, um, which I thought was really amazing. I saw him speak at a conference recently, and he was just amazing. So I think the fact that he's available to, to call and chat with dads as well, they've just thought of so many things. Well, and I think that's another thing that we didn't mention, but that dads can actually have postpartum symptoms and then Mm -hmm. it's like one in 10 or something. And I've certainly had some fathers that have, you know, broken down in my office because they're overwhelmed. They don't know what to do. They're, you know, and the moms may be struggling. Everybody's tired. The risk of postpartum depression and anxiety in men is much, much higher when the woman um, has depression and anxiety. So that's absolutely something to keep an eye out for in these situations. And nobody feels good. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's a huge transition. And when your wife is struggling, that that's a lot to take on and and there's no, no shame in, in struggling. So yeah, we, we try to make our services available to dads as much as possible as well. I think you said a really important word, shame. I think there's so much shame around I'm not supposed to feel like this. I'm a bad person because I can't control my anxiety, my depression, 
uh, my anger, all those things. And I think certainly for women who struggle with substance use, I mean, there's just that one more layer of, you know, and, and I think we have to remind ourselves that, you know, a woman who's using substances is struggling. I mean, it's not something she is thinking, gosh, this is a great thing I should be doing. And that's what I try to tell patients too. You know, I just had a patient yesterday that I met with who, you know, kept saying, I'm just trying so hard not to be angry. And I said, you know what, if you could decide to not be angry, you wouldn't be here and I wouldn't have a job. (laughs) So, you know, if we could all just decide to not have depression or anxiety or get angry, this wouldn't be what it is. Certainly no one is choosing to be that, that way. We're all doing the best that we can. Well, and I think that's true for most mental health, behavioral health. You know, it's not like you get up in the morning and go, gosh, I hope I can have a really bad day and worry about everything and feel like a bad mom. I mean, (laughs) this isn't a willful, you know, like we'll just buck up. I mean, if that was, if it was that easy, then it would be that easy. Right. You don't decide to get diabetes. You don't decide to get the flu. These are all health conditions that we don't get to pick or choose. Yeah, that that's an important point. Well, thank you so much for sharing this work that you're doing. It's so important. And I hope that there will be more and more psychiatrists that are trained and offering these services to primary care because we're all in this together for the moms and the babies and, and, the, and the dads and the partners and the, you know, the, the mm-hmm. extended family. Everybody wants the baby to be okay and, and mm-hmm. to have the joy of a new baby, but it's not always joy. There is a really great Instagram site I like to postpartum stress, and I've referred a lot of moms to that. And it's got little cartoons and Mm -hmm. it's cute, but it's also sometimes kind of dark. But, you know, those thoughts sometimes are dark. So absolutely. Yeah. Again, normalization is so important. Getting rid of the shame and the stigma and recognizing this for the illness that it is um, amongst many other illnesses that we deal with in life. And I too share that hope that there will be more and more awareness of this, more and more providers that are available to help share that information and lead to best possible outcomes for families and babies. Well, again, thank you for your work. And I like to ask my guests if you could go back to when you were a med student, a resident, and give yourself some advice, what would it be? That's a good question. I guess maybe it's been lovely to see how many different niches there are, I guess, in medicine. It's it's so broad and there are so many incredible things that you can do, so many different patient populations. And I think that it's been really lovely for me to be able to kind of keep looking and moving and finding the things that make me happy, the patients that I like to work with. And I absolutely adore working with perinatal patients. And I didn't know, you know, back back in the day that that would be able to be a possibility for me. So I'm grateful for that every day and would just, you know, encourage myself them and anybody to, to keep looking and, and finding that thing that, that brings you joy and makes you feel fulfilled. Yeah. I think that advice to follow your passion. And I mean, you kind of offer hope, like if you haven't found it, keep looking or sometimes, you know, create it. This mm-hmm. field, you know, didn't exist until, you know, some of the pioneers created these because it was important. So if you love something, your patients must be so grateful to have found you because clearly you do have a lot of love for them and you must give them tremendous relief. Yeah. And, you know, the the other beautiful thing about these patients is that there is really no greater incentive for a woman to get well than her baby. And so these patients have so much motivation to get better and are doing really difficult things, right? They're coming in despite you know, maybe concerns about stigma. They're doing psychotherapy work and addressing some of these things that they might feel really vulnerable vulnerable about all for the sake of their baby. And that's just an incredible transformation to see and to see their smiling babies when, you know, they come in to see me. It's just, it's wonderful. Yeah. The transformation of someone who has been sad and struggling to what they look like after treatment is amazing. I've had a couple moms that I've actually, you know, facilitated an admission to inpatient at Pine Rest, you mentioned. And I mean, one woman just said, this saved my life. Mm -hmm. And I mean, she was just, you know, so relieved and so proud of herself. Absolutely. Because this was, this is hard work. I mean, and they're having to change diapers and, 
you know, breast or bottle feed and, you know, Mm -hmm. do baby care. But I think this is another situation where we need to encourage moms to ask for help because we're not very good at that sometimes. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, listen, thank you again. I really appreciate your time. And this has just been so helpful. So we'll get some of those resources out there and keep doing what you do. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So here are the takeaways from Dr. Shaw's conversation with me. And you might want to grab a pencil because it's a big list. So I'm also going to refer to perinatal mood and anxiety disorders as PMAD. And just wanted to reiterate what Dr. Shaw said in that untreated anxiety and depression and other mental health disorders during pregnancy really are a measurable risk to both the mom and the baby. So number one, mothers who experience PMAD after pregnancy may have difficulty bonding to their babies, and this in turn may affect infant behavior. So think about, you know, the colicky baby, the baby who won't sleep. If moms aren't feeling well, it's potentially possible that some of those infant behaviors could be improved when moms feel better and able to better attend to their babies. This is treatable, that's in capital letters, and the effects can be mitigated with treatment and intervention. So this is where we can really help our mamas, and that can come from both OB, peds, and family medicine. Number two, the big question, are medications safe? Well, let's talk about some specific drug classes, and just remember that these mental health disorders are chronic health conditions and don't disappear just because a mom is pregnant or postpartum. So number three, SSRIs. These medications are safe to use, period. While there may be some relationship to preterm delivery and small for gestational age, it is no greater than the effects of untreated depression. They do not cause birth defects, and there have been no documented long-term effects seen in babies. Abrupt discontinuation of these medications can cause some brief infant discontinuation syndrome symptoms, but they're brief and occur in about 30% of the cases. These effects can last for hours to days and are usually mild, so you might see some jitteriness or fussiness. SSRIs can be taken safely while breastfeeding. So just to underscore Breastfeeding, pregnancy, and the postpartum period, moms can take SSRIs safely. Number four, atypical antipsychotics. This is a more nuanced class, and likely this is adjunctive to more complicated mental health disorders, but they can be used during pregnancy and the postpartum period for mothers with bipolar disorder and psychosis, and the benefits may outweigh the risks. And this is where I think consulting with our psychiatry colleagues, utilizing some of the child psychiatry access programs around the country can be really helpful. Number five, lithium does pose some cardiovascular risk like Epstein malformations. However, these occur in general at very small rates. So the likelihood of that being significantly related to lithium is small. But again, these are not medications that pediatrician, OBs, or family medicine providers are going to be prescribing, but we may see some moms that are on this medication. So just kind of, you know, know what the possibilities are. Number six, Depakote and Tegretol. These are big no-nos. They have teratogenic effects and they should not be used during pregnancy. And I think for a lot of us, we're really careful about using them in our adolescent girls because of the potential for pregnancy. Number seven, for complex drug regimens, teaming with psychiatry is essential. These moms are at high risk of complications if their mental health is not treated and guidance from psychiatry is recommended. Again, underscoring, find your psychiatry consultation lines. And there is a map that shows where these programs are located, and I will attach the link in the show notes. So number eight, as I mentioned, where can you find help? So these CPAPs, these psychiatry access programs, many of them are pediatric, but several have perinatal programs as well. 
So HRSA just released funding to develop CPAPs in all 50 states, and perinatal programs may be a part of those. Another great resource is PSI International, and they have all kinds of trainings and certifications. I attended one, and it was amazing. The trainers were funny and smart, and I got so much out of it, mostly just feeling a little bit reassured that moms can take medication during pregnancy safely. Number nine, suicide and infanticide occur and are terrifying events. The symptoms must be parsed out from the much more common intrusive thoughts of harming babies. So those moms that have a thought like, oh my God, could I drop my baby down the stairs? That's intrusive, anxious thoughts. It is adaptive and it may come from those times when we are afraid the tiger was going to come get our baby from the cage and a vestige of evolutionary risk to newborns. So again, remember these are common. Number 10, think twice about contacting CPS or referring families to the emergency room. Ask more questions when you hear about these intrusive thoughts. If you're not sure, call your psychiatrist or OB colleague and find out about mental health services. Again, PSI can help you find professionals with this special training. Number 11, don't forget about partners. One in 10 dads may experience PMAD. And while I don't have stats on same-sex partners, transgender partners, or foster and adoptive parents, it's an area for more research. But I suspect that those other significant others may experience some similar situations. And again, you know, everybody's tired and overwhelmed and it's scary and new. We will be exploring some cultural experiences with respect to PMAD in some upcoming episodes in this series, so stay tuned. And finally, number 12, suicide risk is real, and our job, yes, our job as pediatric providers is to connect moms to help. They're not our patients, and I know that gets in the way of asking, but if the moms are not well, our babies aren't going to do well, and losing a mom to suicide would be an awful adverse event for a baby. Reach out to your OB colleagues or family medicine, you know, whoever takes care of the mom. And if needed, send the moms to the emergency room. A brief assessment can be done by the primary care provider. And if you need a reminder, refresher, check out episode number 37 and number 38, where we talk about screening for suicide. This is a real opportunity, again, for integrated behavioral health, mental health clinicians in your practices. Finally, it is our job as champions for babies to care about and protect our mamas. Thank you so much for listening. I know you guys have a lot on your plate, but I can't underscore how important our moms are to our babies. So I hope that you'll think twice the next time you see a mom come in with her newborn I think we assume that they're so excited and so happy and, di- and you know, just delighted that sometimes we forget that they're overwhelmed, tired, and scared. So it's okay to ask. Thanks again, and we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.